podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I couldn't really see any improvements, certainly with the bowling. My batting started to progress. Then lost my Warwickshire contract, so I'm, I'm back up in Scotland. I've got nothing really to do because six months ago or a year ago, I thought the world was at my feet. And to be honest, that winter, I remember speaking to my wife and saying, like, that's it, that's enough for me. I'm going to go and I had an idea of going to try and play hockey for Scotland, try and become a dual international. That was Scotland's Callum McLeod on how close he was to leaving cricket after being called for an illegal bowling action that eventually, I suppose, changed his life. This is Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. And this episode is part of our season on when teams defeated England for the first time. This is Scotland's turn, and it involves a lot of new misses, a fast bowler who almost turned to hockey, and the team growing up. Yeah, I think a tearaway, angry, quick who ran in and tried to bowl or throw it as fast as I could, and obviously that got me into a bit of trouble, and then I had to go away and work on it and learn how to bat effectively. That's the short story. McLeod went from one of the fastest bowlers that had ever played for Scotland had a Warwickshire contract at a very young age, and everything was going completely great for his career. And then suddenly he was called for chucking, and it seemed like the dream might be over. I went from opening the bowling in a 2020 World Cup, I think I was 20 years old, which is what you you grow up dreaming of doing, uh, the Oval against South Africa, to suddenly a month later, your action's getting reported, you're not being able to play, you're getting pulled out of games. And the, the initial shock wears off, and then you think, OK, let's just get on with it, let's do it. Where it gets, certainly I found it tougher, was two or three months down the line, where it wasn't really going anywhere. I got really lucky. There was a very successful Scotland team who were just coming out of being successful into a very young Scotland side. So there were spots in the team, and Scotland were able to offer me a summer contract that I, that I took, basically because I didn't know what else to do. Tony Judd and Pete Stangle, the coaches at the time, obviously seen something in me and, and basically told me just to go and learn on the job, which is the best place to do it. I think if it happened now, it'd be a completely different challenge trying to get into the current batting lineup, or even two years before that with the very successful team that was led by Ryan Watson and Craig Wright. One thing that really interested me about McLeod's journey is that if you can't bat, how do you learn how to bat? I think the first thing is I I love cricket. So being at Warwickshire at that age with the coaches I had and the players that were there at the time, I mean, I was travelling to first team games, trying to work on my action, travelling up and down the country, spending day to day with Alan Donald. I mean, it's brilliant. And then when you do your bowling drills, you sit down and you're watching Ian Bell and Jonathan Trott go about their business day in, day out. And because I've always been interested in the way people train and the way people do things, I'd sit and I'd watch them and then I'd just go and try it. I'd go and see Jonathan Trott doing his underarms fully padded up or watching Bell doing batting sessions for hours on end or Tony Frost, who was having a brilliant season that year, going in and facing the bowling machine as fast as he could with a little thin bat with the oldest bowling machine balls he could get because he found they would move more. And I would just go and try it. And I'd be nowhere near it and still nowhere near as successful as they would do it. But so what I would learn, I would just watch something, go and try it. And eventually it just started to click. I think the biggest thing that, change was I played some games with Scotland where I didn't bowl. So then the mindset was suddenly actually, well, I better work a little bit harder at this batting because if I'm not bowling and I'm just fielding, then if I don't get many runs, then it could be a long old day. And then just trying to change the mentality of seeing myself as a bowler into my currency is now runs and 
and really trying to put a bit more pressure on that. And I think it's important to note just how far back McLeod started as a batter. I started for Scotland batting number 11, pretty much. I might have batted 10 for the full side. I think for junior Scotland, I certainly got 100 and maybe a couple of 50s. So I wasn't hopeless, but I certainly wasn't an all-rounder. I certainly wasn't somebody that would, if you told me when I was 18, that I'd be sitting here talking about batting, I, I wouldn't have believed you. My coaches who had me then always speaking to me now say that there was more potential than I showed. I just like trying to play shots and trying to smack it, which most bowlers try and do because I just wanted to get the ball in my hand and run in and bowl fast. And it wasn't just McLeod who was changing. Cricket in Scotland has been played for a very long time. If you visit Edinburgh in the summer, the parks are full of cricket. And they are very proud of the few test cricketers that they have produced, whether it be Douglas Jardine or the entertaining leg spinner Ian Peebles, all the way through to Doug Brown and Gavin Hamilton of recent times. It's just that cricket in Scotland never quite progressed above a few handy players. It just stayed amateur. So much so that their natural rivals, Ireland, actually overtook them and so that almost forced Scotland to react. It was just when professional contracts, there were certainly probably three or four guys on full-time professional contracts and then two or three guys on summer contracts when I came out of the game. Whether that would have been there five years before, I doubt it. That's again, it's, it's the timing that I've probably just been a bit lucky. After McLeod improved, he eventually went to play for Durham as a batter. And coming into the 2015 World Cup, many had high hopes for him and for Scotland, but it didn't go well for either. In 2015, McLeod averaged 5.88 from 10 ODIs. In 2014, he averaged 57 with two ODI hundreds. It's the tournament I look back with with the biggest regret. In that tournament, there was games that we should have won and I just didn't contribute in them. And it's, it's annoyed me even till now. There's games that I look back at and just think there was opportunities there. In 2014, the World Cup qualifiers, I'd had a fairly successful qualifiers. I'd got a couple of hundreds. At, but for some reason, 2015, there was just something just not right. When I stripped it all back with the coaches at Durham at the time, the only thing we could find was that I was triggering after the ball was released. But even that, it doesn't sound right. There was some sort of mental block stopping me and watching people at that 2015 World Cup sitting there on the run of form that you've just described, watching Kyle go out and score 100 against Bangladesh, playing beautifully. Um, He's 70 or 80 against England. The way Machen Barrow fought back against New Zealand in the first game and and Freddie Coleman's, I think he got 17 in his last ever game for Scotland against Sri Lanka. I remember sitting and watching Kyle playing Bangladesh and thinking, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. But how do I close the gap to be closer to what he can do? If that's the best that our team's got, and I'm not scoring any runs and not contributing, I've got to find a way of going away and training and put myself under a little bit more pressure to try and be as good as some of those innings. Didn't work straight away, because obviously the rest of 2015 was a train smash, and then... Gradually, as I started to figure it out and I, I got a bit more confidence and working with Grant Bradburn at the time, he helped me change the way I, I went after or I looked at the overall picture of batting. But it wasn't just McLeod who was frustrated in 2015. It was clear that Scotland were building something good and to come away from that World Cup without a win was, well, heartbreaking for the team. The first game against New Zealand, Scotland only made 133, but New Zealand were determined to finish it very quick, and they lost seven wickets along the way, giving Scotland a small chance. England made a dour 303, if that's possible, on a very flat pitch in Christchurch, and had anyone stayed with Kyle Kurtzer, then Scotland would definitely have had a chance, and said they never even passed 200. The game that they should have absolutely won was against Afghanistan. Scoring 210 runs, they had Afghanistan 132 for eight in the chase, 
when Samiella Shinwari played one of the great World Cup innings and pulled Afghanistan to 192 before he was dismissed, leaving the numbers 10 and 11, the two quicks, Shapo Zadran and Hamid Hassan, to score 19 runs. And somehow they did, winning by one wicket and three balls. But perhaps the game that stung the most was when Scotland scored 300 runs against Bangladesh, with again Wikutsa scoring 156 of them. But their bowlers couldn't break through, and Bangladesh won with 10 balls remaining. And the reason that this one hurt is because of the 1999 World Cup. And at that point, Scotland and Kenya were thought to be the two best associate teams around. And Scotland had the advantage of hosting games, including a match against Bangladesh where the visitors batted first and limped to 185. At 83 for six in the chase, Scotland looked done. But Gavin Hamilton was in the middle of a fine World Cup, and he got 63 as Scotland made it to 138 without any further wickets. He actually played so well in that tournament, scoring more than any English batter, that he would eventually be picked for England straight afterwards. Batting with Hamilton was Scotland's keeper, Alec Davies. Davies received a length ball that he tried to bludgeon down the ground, and he got a bit of it. And then so did the bowler, Mandrol Islam. And unfortunately, the ball went onto the stumps. And when the replays were looked at, Hamilton was out. That was pretty much the end of the game for Scotland. After that, Bangladesh beat Pakistan as well in that tournament. Soon after, they were given test status, while Scotland would not even play in the next World Cup. Now, the question is, did Gavin Hamilton get back in time? He's backing up. Here's the hit. Did he get back? It's beautifully struck and very, very well fielded by Islam. And Hamilton is gone by the looks of things. Wait for that fraction of a second. He's one inch short. That is absolutely... You couldn't get closer than that. So Gavin Hamilton departs. That is a break that Bangladesh really wanted and Scotland did not want. Hamilton back on his way. Far knock. 138 for seven. So 2016, Grant changed the way he looked at a little bit of Scottish cricket, but certainly the way he looked at, at my batting. He, he he wanted me to try and get more what he called winning performances or significant contributions. The problem was that although Scotland and McLeod were improving, it was the breakthrough moments that they couldn't win. It's those sorts of games that change your trajectory as an associate nation, like Ireland over Pakistan or Sri Lanka over India. I think we had too many close games for there not to be something there. And it was a touch Scottish, which we hated. It's one of these things that if you're a Scottish sports team and somebody says, oh, you're the underdog Scott story and things like that. As a Scottish sportsmen hate it because it's a stereotype and it's something that we were fighting away. But certainly we'd got so close in so many games that we should have won and we just didn't. Um, I mean, the West Indies game you mentioned there, that's probably the game of cricket I've thought more about than any other game of cricket I've ever played in because it was an opportunity for us not only to win that, then qualify for the World Cup and what that could have done to cricket in Scotland. Of all the almost moments of Scottish cricket, perhaps nothing has been more important than Scotland's loss to the West Indies early in 2018. This was not just a chance to be in a World Cup, but one in the UK, and also prove that they were as good as a major cricket team in the West Indies. And Scotland bossed the first half of the game. They rolled the West Indies for 198. Safian Sharif and Brad Wheel took six wickets between them. But Scotland just couldn't get away with the bat. And as the skies got darker and darker, they kept losing wickets and they fell behind on Duckworth Lewis. But with Richie Berrington and George Munsey still at the crease, they had the firepower to catch up. And then Berrington was given out LBW. It wasn't out 
In fact, it wasn't really all that close to being out. But the ICC weren't using DRS, and Scotland slipped further behind on DLS. And then it started raining, and it didn't stop. There was something kind of mean about the fact that Scotland had travelled all the way around the world to show what they could do, and the rain followed them. Big shout. I think it turned. He's gone. He's got him. Magnificent. What a shot that is from Michael Leesk. A thunderstorm and then celebration in there because it was called off and disappointment in the other change room. The West Indies are through to Cricket World Cup 2019. I think that was part of the development and actually taking that bit of heart and actually, okay, if that's what it feels like, again, how are we going to change it? Some of that is players maturing. If you look at the likes of young Michael Jones coming into the team, even George Munsey, who's, I think he's 27 or 28 now, but at that stage was still developing his game into the player he's become now. And Crossy's still a bit finding his way, even though he played a few games. I think a lot of them, that was probably the first time they'd really hurt after something like that. And I think it just inspired us just to go on and, and just try and reach that next level, which... Again, we're not quite as far along the road as we'd want to be, but we certainly used parts of that to frame the way we train and the way we do things to help us progress. If there is one thing an associate cricketer knows, it's that their performance can affect the future of their nation. String enough bad games together and they are out of the World Cup. Two more bad years and they're no longer even close to qualifying for it. Associate cricketers play in far more high-stakes games than any test players. Any game that you're playing England or any time you're playing a full member, you know what that can mean to you as an associate. And those opportunities come around so rarely for us, especially recently. I think we've played six LDIs since we played England three years ago. We don't play enough cricket, so every game has got some sort of pressure. But certainly when you know you're not trying to qualify, you don't have your jobs in your line, you're trying to clear your mind and play with freedom when you know that the game has a potential to change your foreseeable future, it can be quite a hard place to be. There is a step up between Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe... Ireland, Afghanistan, and then England in 2018, there is. But we knew that we were playing cricket that was good enough to challenge full member teams. I can't remember if it was Kyle or Grant that said it on the end. They said, we don't want teams to come and play badly and we beat them. We want teams to come and play well and our game is better than theirs. And that's the mindset we had to get into. Instead of expecting a full member to come and just roll over, because that doesn't happen often, we need to take those moments that we've lost in the 2015 World Cup we lost against West Indies. Those small little moments that we had been losing, actually changing that to winning them. And that's probably where the long-term process of the winning and significant contributions came in because people were less focused on, okay, I got 80 off 120 balls or actually I got 60 off 30 balls and that's a winning performance. So guys were used to what a winning performance and a significant contribution looks like. I think that made a real shift to the way we played. So I asked Callum if they felt like they were a chance of winning going into the game against England. We sat in meetings and we spoke a lot as a batting unit. We'd watch England, we'd watch Australia, we'd watch India, we'd watch them get 350. And we framed a lot of our chats around, okay, if that's what the top teams are in the world are doing, how does this batting unit get to do that? How do we become a consistent 300 plus or 330 team? Wherever the game's going, how do we get to that? And I think we ended up losing games along the way that we probably should have won, especially in associate cricket, against teams that potentially 270 would have been a winning total, where actually we tried to push on and get 330 and ended up losing games. But we knew that if we want to go to a World Cup or if we want to go and beat the full members, we've got to be a 350 team because that's the way the game's getting played, on good wickets. It was clear from the beginning that that is what Scotland were trying to do, and they got a great start from their wicketkeeper, Matthew Cross, and also their captain, Kyle Kutzer. 
it's very easy for a coach and a captain to say, go and express yourself, go and do this, go and be aggressive. But when, in my opinion, Scotland's best ever cricketer or batter for Scotland, Kyle, goes out and then not only the captain in that, but goes and does it as a player, the way that pushes the rest of the players forward, everyone's thinking, OK, let's just jump on what he's doing, jump on the way he's playing and let's go and fly with that. And I think the confidence that the batting unit took from watching him doing it and leading it and really pushing us just went all the way through the batting unit. That is the positive option. Go up and over. It's a boundary fest here at the Grange at the moment for Scotland. High, wide and handsome, I think. Over the tents. 50 for the captain in some style. At the fall of the first wicket, McLeod comes in to bat. I mean, batting at three, if you come in at 100 for one, I mean, it's quite a nice position, no matter what game of cricket you're coming in. It's quite a nice position, and I've played the sheet before. I was fairly confident. I knew that whether I might not be picking him up, I'd have time or be able to play it in a certain way to start with. So I was in a good position. I was feeling pretty confident about my game. And then obviously, Crossy got out, so we thought about rebuilding slightly, but we knew it was such a good wicket that we knew that we couldn't rebuild for too long and actually nearly ran myself out and not, which I always forget until I watch it back. But then after that, once Sparrow and I got in, we spoke about, OK, what options, how are we going to put the pressure in there? And um, for Barrow, that was pretty much hitting down the ground. And then the good thing batting was Richie for me is that we've played so many games of cricket together now is that he can drag shots out of me because I can be a little bit, OK, I'm going to bat for a long period of time was he was dragging it out to make sure I was going to my sweep early enough to put them under pressure because it was such a good wicket. What little success I've had when I get into a game plan and I can stick to it for a long period of time, I can be quite good at that. I don't have to then go and change. I'm not, if something's working, I'm quite stubborn enough just to keep doing it. Whereas some batsmen would want to change it and show the range of different shots. I mean, I, I think I didn't play a reverse sweep in that innings against the spin, which is not something I would normally, I'm normally, with the fields especially, it was something I would probably do quite early, but I remember thinking in that game, okay, I don't have to do it because what I'm doing is working. And then just getting on the wave. And I don't think I ever looked at the scoreboard and thought, okay, we need to be doing this. The guys just kept coming in and scoring, which made it quite easy just to keep a nice tempo all the way through. Swept very firmly, 150 up for Scotland. And now the big sweep comes. What a shot that is. 50 for McLeod. What a way to get there. There's a time in associate cricket when the step up to the high level catches the batters out. It's quite often the first time they have to face top quality wrist spin or a really fast bowler. But McLeod had played with Mark Wood at Durham, faced Adil Rashid quite a bit in county cricket, and also just made a fantastic 100 against a top quality Afghan bowling lineup. But it's not just McLeod's luck. In associate cricket now, there are just a lot more of these kinds of fast bowlers and wrist spinners than ever before. And the fast bowling bit of it, I think... Probably the part of associate cricket that I've noticed, I don't know if improves the correct word, but certainly take a big leap. I think most of the associate teams now have one, if not a couple of bowlers who can hurry you. So when you make that step up to a full member, it's not as uncommon as it might have been in previous years when the game was a bit more amateur and the guys might not have been. I mean, I'll probably get some old batters coming and having a go at me for that. But I think it's, it's certainly... You look through most of the associate teams, even looking through our bowling unit at the moment, you've probably got six, seven, eight guys, all who can bowl a fairly heavy ball. And then the Dutch team we played last month, a very good bowling attack of Van Beek, Van Meerkoen and Kingma, 
and uh, Van der Gucht and Glover. And then the rest spin, and the plane spin was, it's funny because in 2017, when I started to score a few more runs again, I'd lost my sweep a little bit. I wasn't playing it particularly well, and I wasn't feeling that confident about going down the ground. And I remember I was watching Richie bat on the Merlin machine at the High Performance Academy, and he was just practicing sweeps. I'd taken my pads off, I'd finished my session, I was done the cool down, I was sitting there with a bottle of water, just watching him hit them, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and put my pads back on, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to ask him a couple of questions, I'm just going to try it a little bit, like I said, how I went about learning my very first steps of batting, about watching somebody and thinking, okay, if he's doing that, let's go and try it, and I can't remember whether he even said anything, I, I can't remember, I just went in, and within about 10 balls, I was like, oh, I'm hitting this as well as I've ever hit it. Whether it was confidence, whether it was me lying to myself a little bit because I'd done something I didn't want to do, whether I was tricking myself, whatever. But within 10 balls, I knew that was going to be my best option. So then every session against Watty, yeah, I just made sure almost every ball he bowled, I was sweeping. So I felt really confident. And it just came from that one net session where I was just watching. And it wasn't just McLeod who was confident now. At this stage, George Munsey was still a promising cricketer, the same way years earlier he'd been a promising golfer. And there was someone like Michael Leask, who was an occasionally devastating hitter of the ball. He once scored 42 from 16 balls against the English. But there was something about the fact that in this innings, they just both went straight for England. I think if you take the George innings, it's probably a little bit hard. I certainly know I've done it, and I'm sure batters of maybe other Scotland teams have done it before. In that situation, Mike thought, OK, get myself in, get myself a score, we're playing on Sky it's an opportunity to, to even get a 30 or a 40 and show what we're capable of. Whereas our mindset had changed. Now, actually, the right thing to do here is Moen Ali's ball and he's got the wrong field probably for George and George has just done it. Everything we'd spoken about, everything that Kyle had asked people to do, why Kyle hits his third ball down the ground for six. Little moments like that. And George took his moment there and went with it. I think I'm right in saying it was his first of the I-50 and what from playing that, you can see the confidence that that's given him for the rest of his game. And you can see the way he's developing now. And I think that was probably even just those early shots of turning around and doing it. And then the way he was attacking Plunkett down the ground, it shows how far we've come as a team to have that sort of power at five who can come in and play like that. And the way he's playing is, is really exciting for Scottish cricket. Leeskis was a touch more interesting because he came in and told me he was going to get a single to get me back on strike and then hit it out the ground for six, which said, what happened there, Leeski? And he said, I was just there. Which was, I mean, I've never seen a man hit his first ball for six so often. So, but again, it was good to see. Hit leg side. Can Budge get back? Get a move on, Budge. He does get a move on, and Callum McLeod gets his seventh ODI hundred. The first Scotsman to get an ODI hundred against England. If you've been listening to the entire series of Double Century, when we've been talking about teams beating England, you're probably used to me saying things along the lines of, this is not a great England team, or this England team was not in incredible form. It's happened again and again. There's been occasions, like when Pakistan went up against one of the strongest England teams of all time, but most of the teams that have been defeated just haven't been that strong. That's not the case for Scotland. They went up against the England team when they were the best one-day international team in the world. Joffre Archer had not yet qualified, and Ben Stokes and Joss Butler weren't playing in this game. But Scotland were also without some players. Their star, Josh Davey, was not available as he was in county cricket. And their former captain, Preston Momsen, had made himself available but wasn't chosen. The guy they brought in for Josh Butler, Sam Billings, he's in an IPL contract, he's playing IPL, he's in all the 2020 leagues around the world. He is a fantastic cricketer. He's not coming in after 
doing his training at a club ground in his last game before he plays England or an international game as a club game. He is a full-time professional cricketer who's done well enough to play for England. Whether they claim they weren't at full strength or I think Morgan said they were undercooked, which felt a bit of a, a low blow, especially him coming from Ireland and knowing some of the challenges of associate cricket. I think they, whether they played as a team or not, they were probably playing a lot more cricket than we were. But it's the depths of the countries, they bring in IPL players or they bring in guys who are best players in county cricket. And we can't even get our best county cricketers to come and play, which shows the difference. But it's part of the associate challenge. It's something we have to deal with. And it's, in a way, it's a good thing because it now means that the next squad that has to be picked when everybody's available, the guys in Scotland have to be doing well enough that if Josh Davey or Brad Wheel or Michael Jones become available or Scott State or whoever becomes available, we have to be putting in performances that are good enough to keep them out of the team. And they have to be putting in performances that get them in the team, which I think has been a big shift. I think historically with Scotland, sometimes if you were playing pep cricket, you got a game. You just came in and you replaced the guy like for like in the team. Whereas now there's a much bigger focus on actually, well, if you're not performing for your county, then you can't just expect to come in and play, which I think is a good place to be in. I think it is undeniably true that almost on every level, Scottish cricket had improved. But when it comes down to it, it was really McLeod's innings that allowed everyone to shine around him. I think when you're riding the wave, to me, it's, it's you're making better decisions more often. Or for me, I'm making better decisions and picking better options or hitting better angles or what I'm trying comes off. And some of it was manipulating the field. It was a nice over against Moeen Ali where I think I swept him, so they changed the field, so I swept it a little bit finer. So then he changed it and then what was quite pleasing for me is he, he, I came down and used my feet to create a different angle, which was something I'd been working on a lot for that exact reason. So if it changed, then I had a different angle. And then they switched it back to a different field, which then I was able to take a more aggressive option. I was able to, to think, OK, I can now hit it for six, whereas after getting boundaries in the past, I potentially would have gone, OK, I'll just knock that down the ground and try and get one. Whereas actually, for some reason... And it's something I think about a lot more often now when I'm batting on that day or against Rashid and Bulawayo or Nabi was, OK, how do I keep putting them under pressure? Because they're too good to just let bowl. If you if you only hit them for one, four, and then just take the next one for one, if it's still a, a ball that you can play aggressively to, then they'll be OK because over time they will build you up in pressure. So for me, it was trying to, and it's something I've taken into me, learned from those two innings especially, is, I want to be trying to put as much pressure on their best ball because they're going to bowl it quite a lot because they're very good bowlers. So if he bowled the same ball again, well, I was going to take the most aggressive option I could to it. McLeod and really all of the Scottish batters really just took the most aggressive option again and again. And this was a special moment. It was at home, the Grange, in front of 4,000 people. And also because of people like McLeod, who himself had grown up as a fan of Scottish cricket. We went and watched the 99 World Cup. I remember the first ball of the 99 World Cup for Patterson. I think it was Patterson. Hit it off his legs for four. I remember things like that growing up, even though I was young. I've watched, even even when I wasn't in the team, I'd go and watch Scotland. I was also aware of where my where my dad was. I knew he had his cameras there. It's much just to a little nod to him because he did. I've been very lucky. I've had two parents who've been very supportive of me, driven me. My mum used to, when I was at work, she was a kid, she'd get up at four o'clock on a Sunday morning, drive me down to a session on a Sunday, starting whenever it started. I'd do a two or three hour session, then she'd sleep in the car park and then drive me home for school the next day. So I'm always a little bit right there wrong. When I get closer to the hundreds, I'm always 
fairly aware of where my mum and dad is and make sure there's either a little nod or a little bit of a back tab towards them just because I know what they've put in for me. But the crowd, if we move on to the crowd, the crowd is... Um, so, yeah, that was... Even though it was 4,000, it felt like a lot more. And you need to get yourself to the Grange one day because it's a beautiful old ground. And when the stands are in, because it's a bowl, it feels like they're on top of you. And it's just a really great venue. That's the other option. Four, six. 371 for five. The first part of the day belongs well and truly to Scotland. And Callum McLeod made... 140. And I really want to press home why this is such a big deal. This was a bowler from an associate nation who had lost his county contract with Warwickshire, lost another one with Durham, who had rebuilt his career from scratch while playing with Scotland and almost quit to play hockey, destroying England at their own home ground. And it was an incredibly grand statement, but it was still only half a job. I think when you've got 370 in the board, you're always confident. You know they're going to have to play well. But when they come out and they do play well and Johnny Bear still plays the way he played, and suddenly they're making 370 look like it's going to be a walk in the park at one point, you start to think, oh, wow, this is next level. This is how they play it. And they weren't frightened of that score in the slightest, which again goes back to the long term, like I was saying, of why we were trying to develop to be that sort of team, because they were used to scoring that sort of score. So once they got going and once Burstow was playing and the way he was hitting the ball, I mean, it's not enjoyable when you're in it, but when you look back at it, there's so much to learn from it, so much to watch and... I know a lot of our guys have gone away and, and looked at the way he'd go about it and think about how they can add some of that to their games. Up and over, into out for Johnny Bairstow. That's 100 up for England. Well, where has that gone? Is it out of the ground? First wicket down, Jason Roy, who has to go. Hit to mid on, he takes the single. Three ODI hundreds in a row for Johnny Bairstow. No England player has ever done that. Johnny Bairstow made 105 from 59 balls before Richie Barrington dismissed it. When he was out, England only needed 210 from the next 32 overs with eight wickets in hand. But Scotland just kept putting pressure on. And it came from a surprising source, their very young left-arm orthodox bowler, Mark Watt. This is where... A lot of what we'd done came back into fruition. Mark Watt in that game doesn't get enough credit. I think he bowled 10 overs, 3 for 55, which in a wicket where 350 was probably par, he's gone miles under the run rate and picked up three key wickets. A fantastic performance from a young bowler. But even the way he went about it and the way he created things and then the way the guys kept creating chances when the new white balls get a little bit older, those chances, if you can take them, really slow teams down. And then we got on that little roll where we took two or three wickets really quickly. I think that's when we really started to think, OK, we're going to win this, until Moeen Ali started. Until Moeen Ali started. This is how the innings kept going. Scotland would think that they had the game and they were back in front, and then someone would get on a roll from England. And then Scotland would take a wicket or a couple of wickets and feel like they had it again, only for another player to hit out. It was one of those never-ending English batting lineups that helped them get to number one in the world in one-day internationals and eventually win a World Cup. And I think that's where it shows it more than the batting. The little attention to details, if you watch the way the guys field and the way they were getting into the great positions to taking breaks on the stumps, these were things that we'd been working on. There's a brilliant wicket where, where Ali Evans finds himself at point 
Kelly Evans is a big, tall, fast bowler, not your natural point fielder. But he'd taken it upon himself in the, probably the months leading up to that. When Beryl's bowling, he knew he was going to be in the ring. So actually, why don't I go and practice being at point and trying to make something of himself instead of standing there and not being very good at it? And he took a very good catch. He was close and Hales hit it at him. So it's these little moments and you don't notice them unless you actually sit back and you see the overall picture or you're involved in it. And they were the exact moments before that we would have been losing. The runouts we might have just missed or Moeen Ali's catch where Mark takes pace off the ball. We might have gone safe and bowled it into his legs and tried to get him off strike and try and bowl at the other guy. Instead, he's gone the other way and gone, OK, what's my best chance of getting him out and winning this game? And he's just got a real good cricket sense of how to bowl, but he's also competitive. He also likes winning. He, he wants to get in the battle. He wasn't going to shy away. It didn't matter to him that it was Moeen Ali. It could have been anywhere, anyone. And to be honest, there's a good chance he wouldn't have known who it was at the other end. But he's just got a cricket sense and a, a competitiveness of growing up and playing the cricket he's played at quite a young age. To actually go, OK, I'm just going to try and beat you. And I think that's quite an exciting place for a lot of Scottish cricket to be in. Catches the cry. Oh, it is as well. Well done, Mark Watt. Slightly slower. Suckered Moeen Ali into the big shot. But England didn't go away even after the Moeen Ali dismissal. Liam Plunkett hit a runner ball 40, but Scotland just kept taking wickets. And then finally, Safian Sharif hit the pads of Mark Wood with a reverse-swinging Yorker that pretty much any bowler from any country would be proud of. And Scotland had beaten England. Plunkett is hurrying. He wants a second. Rashid responds. Rashid, a desperate dive. Out it is. Oh, must be out. It is out. Scotland have done it. It was joy. It was emotion. It was... It was just the moment we'd been building up from. And it's part of what I look back at and enjoy that game the most for is that they played well as well. Both teams played well and we were able to win that moment that we'd, we'd been speaking about for years. I think it was just enjoyment, just a little bit maybe a sense of we've done something here. The pitch invasion at the end is the moment that gives me the most goosebumps. It's the moment that I remember most vividly. It's Safi's final wicket. And just this onrush of noise and people. I've never seen anything like that in Scottish cricket. I've not seen much of that in Scottish sport, never mind Scottish cricket. If we could capture that and grab more of it as, a, as an organisation and as a team, then how far we could push cricket in Scotland. And then it was everybody else who was sitting in the bar after with Fraser Watts, having a beer with him who'd played, who'd helped me as a young batter. He was getting as much enjoyment out of it as I was. And it's things like that that as opposed to thinking, oh, we got away with one there. Actually, no, I'm going to enjoy this for what it is. We've played well, they've played well, but we've managed to win that little moment, which we've been speaking about. And then it's seeing guys that you hadn't seen for a few years and you just hadn't come across them, or next time you go back to a club and they want to say well done, or it's at the airport and there's a guy who'd read about it in the paper who just wants to come up and say well done to the cricket team for beating England. It didn't matter whether we'd played anything. It's we beating England and... We just need to go on and keep trying to get those moments to keep trying to win games of cricket. It can't just be that one game that we keep going back to. We want to have more opportunities to go and do that. And having moments and memories like that really establishes the ambition of players that they can go and do things like this. They can go onto the world stage and, and beat people. And I think that's starting to filter all the way down through the regional cricket and, and club cricket, which is hopefully in the years to come produce an even better standard of play. It is quite a tight-knit unit, but there's also a lot more cricket played in Scotland than people probably give it credit for. So it's the enjoyment for everybody involved there. 
it was amazing to be a part of it and the energy and the feel of it and then guys coming and jumping on you from clubs or people that you see and you knew and the, the elation in their face and the excitement and, and just how much it meant to a bigger group of people. That to me was without doubt the standout moment of the day. Maria Rasmus gives the last man Mark Wood out. It was full and straight. Great scenes. What a victory this is for Scotland. The greatest in their cricketing history. Wonderful scenes, crowd invasion, shirts are off, fall and straight, kept his nerve, England needed just a handful of runs. Sharif has delivered his only wicket. Fabulous performance from Scotland. What a win! Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast only pops up when we have a season, so it really relies on you rating, reviewing, and sharing on social media. This series is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, and you can find a link to that in our show notes. This episode was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Huge thanks to Callum McLeod for speaking to us, and it was produced by Nick McCorriston. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.